Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. It all started with a dinner. In September of 2006, an off-duty police officer, Mike McGee, attended a dinner with his in-laws. Among the guests was an elderly man, Larry Adams. Adams had been invited alongside other residents of a local nursing home. The unlikely pair sat together and chatted amongst themselves for a while before Larry turned to the officer and said, I have a case I want you to look at. After hearing the details, Mike made a promise to Larry, and in the following days, he would follow up on the harrowing story. Come with me to Toledo, Ohio, where a chance encounter between two strangers would lead to the unraveling of a 39-year-old mystery, a mystery that destroyed the lives of those closest forever. Eileen Marie Adams was born in Sylvania, Ohio, on September 19, 1953. She was the fourth child born to her parents, Mary and Lawrence, and the couple would eventually go on to have four more children before completing the family. Eileen grew up sharing a room with her two sisters, Ruth and Maggie. Eileen was described as a beautiful person who was full of life. The family of ten looked out for each other, and they were described as close, loving, and a good Catholic family. However, everything would change on an unsuspecting day during the busy holiday period of 1967. 14-year-old Eileen was a freshman at Central Catholic High School in Toledo. Her typical routine would consist of her finishing school in the mid-afternoon, and making her way by bus to her older sister Marianne's house in West Toledo. Here, she would wait for her father to collect her and take her home. On December 18, 1967, Eileen began her day as usual. It was a brisk morning, so she left home wearing a white blouse under a two-piece blue suit, topped off with a dark green corduroy coat. She carried her school supplies with her in a brown shoulder bag. That day, she attended school and, afterwards, caught the bus to Marianne's house with a group of friends. Eileen chatted with her friends as they made the journey together, with one friend reporting that Eileen had hoped she could go Christmas shopping with her father that evening. Her friends left the bus a few stops before Eileen, and the girls said goodbye as they began making their way home. Initial reports suggest that Eileen left the bus at her usual stop and began making her way to her sister's house on Sylvania Avenue. Her father arrived to collect her at 3.45, but Eileen was not there. He drove to the bus stop and waited, hoping that she had gotten caught up with school or with friends. When he couldn't find her, he began to worry. Marianne said that by 5 o'clock, her father was becoming panicked and jumpy. His demeanor was making Marianne nervous, but she also shared his concern. 
she knew that Eileen was reliable and never late home. As the evening went on, the temperature dropped significantly, and it began to rain. Marianne waited by the door for hours, praying her sister would burst through, unaware of the panic she'd caused. By six o'clock, a missing persons report was filed with the Toledo Police Department. Authorities started searching for Eileen, but with the last official sighting of her being on the school bus and no surveillance cameras at the time, investigators had limited information to go off of. Eileen's younger sister, Maggie, describes her disappearance as the day real life stopped. She said their close-knit family of ten became nine broken individuals, each unsure of how to cope with the devastating situation they found themselves in. With just a week to go until Christmas, Eileen's gift sat under the tree in the living room, waiting for her to return home. Over the following weeks, Eileen's father and brothers would spend each evening traveling around Toledo, driving the route she would have taken that day. They would stop periodically along their journey, asking passersby if they'd seen her or knew anything about her disappearance. Her younger siblings stayed home with their mother, so someone would always be there if Eileen returned. Maggie says that during this period, the only game the children played was the waiting game, waiting for Eileen to return home. The family continued in limbo before they finally received the news they'd been dreading. On January 30, 1968, Eileen's frozen body was discovered by a hunter in a rural field in Monroe County, Michigan, 20 miles north of where she was last seen. She was found wrapped in a sheet, concealed with a brown braided rug, and was wearing the white blouse and two-piece blue suit she'd worn the day she'd vanished. Her shoes, coat, and bag were missing. Upon further inspection, authorities realized that Eileen's wrists were tied at the front of her body. She had also been bound with an electrical cord that was wound tightly around her neck and secured at both ankles. Authorities referred to this as a death tie and believed it was done purposefully so that Eileen wouldn't have been able to straighten her legs without cutting off her airway. Her body was covered in white animal hair, and roofing nails were scattered in the rug that concealed her body. Following the discovery, Monroe, Michigan detectives and the Toledo Police Department began a homicide investigation. They were also tasked with delivering the devastating news to Eileen's family. Eileen's sister, Maggie, discusses the evening in detail, describing how she instantly knew something was wrong when she realized that the door to the family room was closed. She walked into the kitchen and discovered her siblings and grandmother crying. Her brother told her that Eileen was dead, and Maggie couldn't believe it. She was warned not to enter the family room where her parents were. Maggie admits that she wasn't a brave child, but that evening, she decided to see what was happening for herself. As she opened the door, she encountered a scene that she has never been able to forget. She said, quote, My mom was crying, face all red and blotchy, but silent, no sounds. My dad was crying harder than I had ever seen anyone cry. I had seen him cry in the days of Eileen's disappearance, and that had unnerved me. 
but it was nothing like this. This was so raw. This was so deep. He didn't feel Mom's hand. He didn't hear the door when I opened it. He knew nothing but his daughter was dead, and now so did I. And I also knew that moms and dads couldn't always protect their children. Eileen's autopsy was carried out the following day on January 31st. The pathologist concluded that Eileen's cause of death was probable strangulation. However, Eileen had also suffered numerous blows from a hammer or similar shaped weapon that had caused numerous skull fractures. During autopsy, the pathologist discovered that a three-inch nail had been driven into the back of Eileen's skull at the base of her neck. She confirmed that the 14-year-old had been sexually assaulted prior to her murder. Following the pathologist's report, police offered a reward of $2,500 for any information that could lead to the arrest of Eileen's killer. Investigators also requested more information from anyone who had seen Eileen on the day she had vanished. They were hoping to discover more about a young man she was believed to have been speaking to on the bus. The horrifying news of Eileen's gruesome death caused even more devastation for her family. They were struggling to process the reality of what had happened. Eileen's sister, Maggie, said that at this point, the children just hadn't lost their sister, but their parents as well. Their mother turned to God for answers and would spend her days praying repeatedly for Eileen's soul. She would insist that the children line up in a row get down on their knees and pray for strength, understanding, and forgiveness. They were instructed to do this again and again. Maggie commented that it seemed praying was the only time their mother remembered that she had other children who needed her, as she was too consumed by her grief to focus on anything else. Their father, on the other hand, he refused to pray. He turned his back on religion and instead became reliant on alcohol to take his pain away. Larry Adams began carrying a gun everywhere and is described as flying into rages, where he would smash up items in the home and talk in detail about what he would like to do to the man who had taken his daughter away. During these rages, Maggie and Ruth would hide together under the bed, struggling to cope with the loss of their sister but not truly understanding what had happened or why their father was acting this way. The pair would comfort each other while being terrified for the safety of their mother and their other siblings. And while these details are not pretty, Maggie felt it was important to demonstrate the impact that Eileen's death had on the entire family. As the years went by, the police investigation continued. However, the case quickly went cold. Despite a generous reward and numerous tips that came in, nobody could offer any valuable information that would lead to any viable suspects. The family quickly became paranoid about the killer returning. They had no idea why Eileen was chosen, if she was targeted specifically, or if one of her siblings could be next. As a result, the children were unable to go anywhere but to school. They were not allowed to attend sleepovers with their friends or go to birthday parties alone. They couldn't visit their sister, Marianne, as that was where Eileen was traveling the day she was taken. Their torment continued for another 15 years before the first big break in the case finally came. 
In December of 1981, an intoxicated woman entered the Toledo Police Department. She claimed to have information about an unsolved murder. The woman, Margaret Bowman, had left her abusive husband in previous years. And after telling her new partner about something she had witnessed in 1967, he had driven her to the police station to file a report. At the time of Eileen's disappearance, Margaret had been living in Toledo with her ex-husband, Robert Bowman. She told the police that, in the days following the birth of their child in December of 1967, she began hearing noises coming from the fruit cellar of their home. The pair had only been living there a short while, so Margaret thought nothing of the noises and assumed it was rats. In the following days, she descended the stairs to the laundry room to hang up some clothes and began hearing the muffled noises again. But this time, she thought she could hear crying and moaning. She decided to open the cellar door to see what it was. When she opened the door, she discovered a naked young girl, bound and hanging, like Jesus, with tape covering her mouth. Margaret knew the girl was still alive, as the girl looked her in the eyes as she entered the room. Margaret, in disbelief at what she was seeing, screamed and ran back upstairs. She was immediately confronted by her husband, who told her she was messing with his business and had now left him with no choice but to kill the girl. Robert quickly ran down the stairs and into the basement, turning the radio up loud so Margaret couldn't hear what was happening. After a short while, he came back up the stairs and forced Margaret to get in the car while he removed the young girl's body from the home. He then forced Margaret to drive across state lines into Michigan, where he dragged the girl into a wooded area. When he returned to the car, he told Margaret that if she told anybody about what she had seen, he would kill her and their baby. He also made her believe that she was now an accessory to murder. In the following days, as Margaret was cleaning the kitchen, she discovered numerous school books that had been concealed. When she opened the cover of one of the books, she found Eileen's name written inside. As she finished her story, the police became skeptical of the details and wondered if Margaret was simply a scorned ex-lover. They questioned why it had taken so many years for Margaret to come forward with such crucial information. They were also aware of her history of alcoholism, which had caused her to have a few run-ins with law enforcement over the years. They continued to interview Margaret and pressed her for more information conducting a lie detector test and even placing her under hypnosis, looking to find discrepancies in her story. During questioning, they were intrigued to learn that Margaret and Robert had a white dog at the time of Eileen's disappearance, which would account for the white animal hairs found on her body, a detail that had never been shared with the public. When asked what happened to the animal, Margaret said Robert had killed it. The investigators decided, after many weeks of interview, that Margaret's story was consistent and worth investigating, and they began their search for Robert Bowman, who was now in his mid-40s. They were aware that Robert had ties to numerous areas such as Miami, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and the state of Arizona. Toledo police contacted each department, asking officers to be on the lookout for him. 
When a letter from the Miami Police Department arrived in January 1982, Detective Bob Lynch immediately recognized the wanted man. Robert Bowman stood out. He was unkempt with a long beard and wore dirty white clothing that was torn and hanging from his thin body. Officers recognized him as a man who often walked along the southern coast of Florida, pushing a shopping cart filled with trash that he'd found and planned to upcycle. His strange demeanor made people feel uneasy. But despite appearances, life hadn't always been this way for Robert Bowman. While married to Margaret, he'd been a successful businessman, owning a prominent construction company and manufacturing luxury purses that were sold in high-end fashion stores. As his marriage failed, so did his businesses. On a whim, he decided to sell everything he owned and spent the remainder of his money, becoming homeless by choice. Prior to his divorce, he decided he wanted to live off the grid and tried to force Margaret to do the same, but she declined. Miami detectives began the hunt for Robert soon after receiving the letter and eventually located him living within an abandoned, burned-out restaurant known as the Painted Horse. It was on the Miami shoreline. Bowman admitted he was paid $10 a month to look after the place, and despite the damp and dilapidated conditions, he decided it was a great place to live. Robert was taken to the police station for questioning, and his bizarre behavior caused officers to become increasingly frustrated. Bowman was initially described as being calm and cooperative. However, soon after, detectives mentioned Eileen Adams, his behavior began to change. He confessed that he had been on earth numerous times and used to be Jesus. He'd fought in the war and kept discussing his newfound religion where he was not allowed to own any possessions. While listening to him rambling on, Detective Bob Lynch noticed that Robert had begun shaking uncontrollably. Eventually, officers cut him off and asked him point-blank, Did you kill Eileen Adams? Robert responded, Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You're the detective, you figure it out. Following this interview, Robert was returned to the abandoned restaurant, and Toledo police were notified of Robert's whereabouts. Armed with the information that Eileen Adams was last seen in Robert Bowman's home, a group of detectives from both Toledo and Monroe County decided to travel to Florida to conduct their own interview. There, they entered the abandoned restaurant and introduced themselves to the strange man. While walking through the premises, they noticed a Spider-Man doll suspended from the doorway and bound in the same manner as Eileen Adams had been. The doll also had a nail protruding from its head. Robert's bizarre behavior continued. He showed detectives his friends, seven rats living amongst the rubble who he had named. He claimed they would sit and share dinner with him and would curl up with him at night. When asked about Eileen, he would change the subject or give cryptic responses, teasing the detectives, but being careful to avoid incriminating himself. During this encounter, Robert also pointed out the Spider-Man doll and asked detectives to pay particular attention to the way it was bound at the wrists and the ankles. He eventually admitted that Eileen had been in his home and that he did own a white dog at the time. 
However, he claimed that this didn't mean he had killed Eileen, and again, he told the detectives it was their job to prove he did. This back and forth continued for days, until detectives admitted they were wasting their time. Having been unsuccessful at acquiring a confession, the detectives traveled back to their respective departments, feeling confident that they'd found Eileen's killer, but disappointed that he was able to walk free. They believed he was intentionally trying to confuse the investigation with his meaningless rambles, trying to present himself as insane so detectives didn't take him seriously. The group returned to Florida in April of 1982 to question Robert one more time. Robert was asked to leave the restaurant where he'd been living, and detectives feared he would soon become untraceable. They tried to speak to Robert again, but he became angry and defensive and expressed his belief that the police were trying to set him up, ruining his opportunity to pursue a new business venture. When the interview ended, Robert told detectives they would never see him again. At this stage, detectives began building a case against Bowman based on the eyewitness report from Margaret, evidence found on Eileen's body, and the countless hours of interviews they'd conducted with Robert. By late 1982, Robert Bowman was officially named as the main suspect in the case. Unfortunately, as DNA testing was not available at the time, the circumstantial evidence they had gathered was not enough for detectives to secure a conviction, and they were unable to proceed with charges. Once again, the case went cold. And listeners, we'll be right back after a word from this week's sponsor. If you want to hear, hey, where'd you get that? This holiday season, Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free. They scour the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or for the entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Here are a few of my favorite gifts that I found on their site. As a cocktail lover, I hope to snag a pair of the gin and tonic earrings made from recycled glass while the mystery lover in me is eyeing the Victorian-era detective game. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high-quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts you'll find anywhere. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com alreadygone. That's uncommongoods.com alreadygone you'll get 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon goods. We're all out of the ordinary. Eileen's family were notified of the new development in the case and became hopeful that an arrest would be imminent. Maggie describes the first time she heard Robert Bowman's name and how it was like somebody came along and ripped open an old wound. The family had learned to cope with Eileen's death by ignoring it, and the children, who were now adults, were careful to never bring her up in fear of upsetting their parents. When they learned there wasn't enough evidence to charge Bowman, the family was devastated. They felt as though Eileen had been lost in technicalities, and, despite now knowing who had taken her life, there was nothing they could do about it. Another decade passed, and, due to advancements in DNA technology, 
detectives decided to reopen the case in 1995. They tested the clothing found on Eileen's body and ran samples through the police database, hoping to find a match, but the results were inconclusive. By the late 1990s, both of Eileen's parents seemed to have come to terms with the fact that there would never be a trial, but they were deeply disappointed by the lack of justice. In March of 2002, Mary Adams, Eileen's mother, passed away. As the two sisters, Maggie and Marianne, began clearing away her possessions, they discovered a box at the bottom of her dresser. Maggie describes this moment and how they were taken back to the evening Eileen disappeared. Their mother had come into the bedroom collecting Eileen's pajamas from the evening before. She said she was going to wash them so they would be fresh for her when she finally came home. When Maggie and Marianne opened the box at the bottom of the dresser, they discovered Eileen's pajamas, wrapped in tissue paper, still unwashed. She had kept them for almost 35 years. It wasn't until September of 2006 that the case would be reopened again, and progress could finally be made. This is when Lawrence, Eileen's father, would have a chance encounter with Mike McGee, an off-duty officer of the Toledo Police. During the dinner at Mike's in-law's house, Lawrence, who went by Larry, told Mike what had happened to his daughter and apologized for his inability to recall specific details. At this point, Larry had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, but he was determined that Eileen's case would have one last push. Now, Mike McGee had never heard of Eileen Adams, and for a moment, he wondered if Larry had heard about the case elsewhere. When he returned to the station, he brought up Eileen's name and cold case detectives began combing through her file. They realized that Robert Bowman had been a suspect for years, and they knew they were likely to get a positive DNA match this time. Detectives requested DNA from Margaret Bowman and the child she and Robert shared together. Once they obtained the samples, they conducted a reverse paternity test, comparing the DNA from Robert's child to the DNA found on Eileen's underwear. The results showed a familial match. A press release published in December 2006 named Robert Bowman as a wanted man, and the search for him began. Forgotten details of Eileen's case were shared along with a photograph of Bowman, and police requested any information from the public that would lead to his whereabouts. At this point, investigators feared that Robert may be dead, but they did not give up hope. The case was detailed on America's Most Wanted, and both the press release and TV feature led to dozens of tips from throughout the United States. Most notably, one woman believed she had encountered Robert at a casino in Las Vegas, and another thought she had seen him attending a medical center in San Diego. Investigators set their sights on California, knowing Robert had previous ties there, and asked officers to be on the lookout for a second time. On October 2, 2008, almost 41 years after Eileen was brutally murdered, Robert was finally located in Southern California near Palm Springs. Patrolling officers had spotted him riding a bicycle and believed there was a warrant out for his arrest, later discovering that he was wanted for murder in Ohio. 
At the time of his capture, he was living under a tarp in the California desert. Robert was then extradited back to Ohio, and officers conducted a new DNA test for a direct match between Robert and the seminal fluid found on Eileen's clothing. Following positive results on October 31st of that month, he was indicted on one count of murder in the first degree. Bowman also underwent a psychiatric evaluation and was deemed fit to stand trial. Eileen's siblings were thrilled with the news, and they told their father what had happened. At this point, Larry's Alzheimer's had progressed significantly, but Maggie says she likes to believe he understood what they were telling him. Larry Adams passed away just three weeks later. News of the arrest spread rapidly among the small community, and many found themselves thinking back to those days when Eileen had first vanished. Linda Boxell was lying in bed one evening when she saw Robert Bowman's picture on the news. She recognized him immediately. In late November 1967, 19-year-old Linda was walking home from work in Toledo when a man pulled up beside her and offered her a ride. Linda refused, but the man persisted. She believed him to be a businessman due to his smooth-talking abilities and the suit he wore. She told him she wasn't interested and she had a bad feeling about him. The man continued to follow her, and eventually Linda walked into a drugstore to ask for help. There, she waited with the pharmacist for 10 minutes, but when she left, he was still waiting outside. She walked further up the road and entered a bar, but the man soon appeared behind her. He wrote down a number on a napkin, and when she asked him what it was, he told her it was how many girls he'd had. Linda got up and left again, feeling extremely uneasy. She entered multiple establishments to escape him, but he'd always catch up. Eventually, she ran into a dry cleaner's on Hawthorne Street and told the cashier, Patty Jardin, what was happening. Patty instructed Linda to wait with her, and she called the police. When officers arrived, they wrote down the details to file a report and drove Linda home. Linda was so afraid of this man finding her that she moved out of her apartment where she lived and returned to her parents' house. She hadn't seen him again until that evening when his face popped up on the news. Linda described the horror of realizing that her experience with Robert was in the same area of Toledo that Eileen had been taken from, and it occurred just a few weeks prior to the young girl's disappearance. She contacted investigators, but they didn't take her story any further. In 2009, a year after Robert Bowman's arrest, the body of Eileen Adams was exhumed for further forensic analysis. The pathologist who had conducted the original autopsy had passed away and would no longer be able to give evidence or be cross-examined at trial. The prosecution team believed a second autopsy conducted by a forensic anthropologist was more likely to result in a successful conviction. Bowman's trial was pushed back as these tests were carried out. Sadly, the exhumation of Eileen's body only brought more heartache to her remaining family members, as they discovered that Eileen had originally been buried naked inside of a body bag. The pajamas her mother had picked out had been laid on top of her, as opposed to being placed on her body. Eileen's sister, Maggie, admits that she was grateful that both parents were no longer alive to know this detail, as it likely would have killed them both. 
Robert Bowman's trial eventually began at Lucas County Common Pleas Court in Ohio on August 8, 2011, and it was presided over by Judge Jean Zamuda. The county prosecutor, J. Christopher Anderson, began his opening statement by discussing the day that Eileen had vanished on her way to her sister's house and the following weeks of agonizing uncertainty for the family. He detailed the moment Eileen's body was discovered bound and frozen in a field in Michigan and how her killer had attempted to hide her body by tightly concealing it within sheets and a rug before securing it with cord. He then talked about the case going cold and how their first big break came the day Margaret walked into the police station, confessing that she had seen Eileen in the basement and knew what had happened to her. Finally, he summarizes the years it took for officers to finally receive DNA confirmation from evidence left behind by Robert Bowman after he sexually assaulted Eileen. The defense, led by attorney Pete Roast, argued that the case wasn't as straightforward as it seemed. He questioned why the case was built on witness testimony from Bowman's ex-wife, who had known alcohol abuse issues and took almost 15 years to come forward with information. He believed most of Margaret's information was built on what she had read in newspapers at the time Eileen was found, due to the highly publicized nature of the crime. He also argued that, despite hundreds of tips that came in following the discovery, Bowman was never questioned, never considered a suspect, until Margaret Bowman led them his way. The court heard from numerous prosecution witnesses over the following days, including Eileen's sister Marianne, two of the officers who interviewed Bowman in Florida in 1982, Margaret Bowman, and other detectives leading the case. The jury were also played recordings of interviews conducted with Robert Bowman in 2008. The defense then called a single witness to cast doubt on the DNA evidence presented in the case. Assistant Laboratory Director Julie Heinig testified that her private lab had conducted tests of both the seminal fluid found in Eileen's underwear and swabs of the nail found in Eileen's skull. Julie confirms that neither swab returned results matching Robert Bowman or any other male DNA profile. During cross-examination, she admitted she had reviewed the results of the prior DNA test, which was done in 2006, and found the results to be reliable, returning a 1 in 4.1 million statistical match to Bowman. She agreed with the prosecution that the remaining DNA would likely be degraded, given that it was obtained 40 years ago and had been exposed to the elements for over a month while Eileen was waiting to be found. The trial of Robert Bowman lasted approximately seven days, and the jury of nine women and three men was sent to deliberate in a nearby motel on August 22, 2011. However, after days of deliberation, the jury were stuck on a vote of 10 to 2 in favor of conviction. Despite continuing to review the evidence, the two jurors in favor of a not guilty verdict were unable to alter their view and a mistrial was declared by Judge Jean Zamuda. A retrial date was set for later that year, and following a new jury selection, Robert Bowman appeared in court for the second time on October 17, 2011. The second trial began with jurors being led to the most prominent sites associated with the case, 
First, they were taken to the Central Catholic High School in Toledo and were driven along the bus route that Eileen would have taken on the day of her disappearance, making note of the bus stops along the journey. Then jurors were taken to the previous home of Robert and Margaret Bowman on West Sylvania Avenue, where Eileen was alleged to have been held captive for days. Finally, they were taken to the location in Monroe County, Michigan, where Eileen's body was found. The judge warned the jurors that the landscape had likely changed in the time since Eileen's disappearance. However, he believed seeing the relevant locations could lead to a deeper understanding of the evidence they were about to hear in court. Jurors then heard the opening statements from both the prosecution and defense, and all witnesses from the first trial returned to give evidence again. Margaret Bowman took the stand and described the moment she found Eileen in the fruit cellar. She described the room with mattresses lined up along the walls, and Eileen suspended naked from the ceiling with tape covering her mouth. She tells jurors how she screamed in horror and ran upstairs to her husband, who was furious with her for making the discovery. He ranted and raved at her and made her feel as though it was her fault that Eileen had to die. She believed that Eileen had been held in the cellar for days. Margaret also testified to owning a white dog at the time of the murder and told jurors about how she'd later found Eileen's school books in her home. The defense again tried to cast doubt on her story, asking why she had stayed with Robert for years, insinuating that she had only left once his businesses had begun to fail. Margaret responded that she had stayed because he would often threaten the life of her and their child. Once she had finally saved enough money to leave, she left and she filed for divorce. Detective Pete Navarre then gave evidence, describing the moment he and Detective Dan Brimmer interviewed Robert Bowman in Florida. He expressed his belief that Bowman was playing with the detectives and mentioned the strange surroundings in which Bowman was living alongside his pet rats and cockroaches. He talked about the dolls that Bowman had hung in various areas, most notably the Spider-Man doll that was bound and suspended from the ceiling, and a beheaded Ken doll. Both had nails driven through their heads and were pointed out by Bowman himself. Pete Navarre also told the jury of the frustration shared amongst officers whenever they asked Bowman a question and received a maybe, maybe not response. He states that during questioning, Bowman would make statements alluding to his involvement in the crime, such as, To my knowledge, the murder of Eileen Adams occurred in my house. Despite this, he wouldn't admit responsibility. The detectives had no choice but to let him go. The jury then heard from a forensic anthropologist, Julie Saul, who took the stand carrying a portion of Eileen's skull. She showed the jurors numerous areas where Eileen had sustained injuries to her head. She also showed jurors a split in Eileen's skull, which had been held together with human tissue and had gone undetected during the initial autopsy. She testified that significant force would have to have been used to cause the skull to split as it had. Julie Saul's findings were then supported by Coroner Diane Scarla Barnett, who testified that an injury of this nature would typically result in an instantaneous death due to the amount of force used. Despite this, both experts agreed that it would have been impossible to determine which of the many injuries Eileen sustained 
would have been the one responsible for her death. They also both agreed that their testimony would not provide insight into who had committed the injuries. Eileen's original cause of death was listed as probable strangulation. However, Diane determined Eileen's death to be the result of homicidal violence. In the final days of the trial, Robert Bowman decided to take the stand for the first time. In his testimony, he continued to express his view that the police and his ex-wife had set him up. He claimed police had tried to bully him into giving a confession and would begin rambling about his religious beliefs. The judge interrupted him numerous times while he was giving evidence and asked him to stay on topic. During questioning from his own attorney, he agreed that he couldn't have brought Eileen into his home undetected because he was always working late and his wife was always home with their newborn baby. When asked to account for his DNA on Eileen's underwear, Robert replied, Anything is possible. The second trial came to an end on October 26th, and the jury was asked to begin deliberation. They were instructed to carefully consider the evidence and to not allow the outcome of the first trial to influence their decision. After two days of deliberation, a unanimous verdict was reached, and the jury returned to the court. On October 28, 2011, 75-year-old Robert Bowman was found guilty of the murder of Eileen Adams. Following the verdict, a letter written by Eileen's sister, Maggie, was read out to the court. The final paragraphs in which she discusses sentencing for Robert Bowman read, Eileen had been missing 43 days when her body was found, and now, 43 years later, Robert Bowman stands before you, Your Honor, waiting to hear what his sentence will be. He has had over 40 years after murdering our sister to live his life as he wished. Eileen was just a little girl with her whole life before her. She was a beautiful person, and not one of us doubt that she would have grown up to be an amazing woman. And we all miss her. Robert Bowman is the reason why Eileen is not with us today. Robert Bowman chose to abduct our sister Eileen. Robert Bowman chose to molest and rape her. Robert Bowman chose to kill Eileen and throw her body away like she was nothing more than trash. My family sincerely pleads with this court to punish Robert Bowman to the fullest extent possible for his choices. We hope that the next time we hear the name Robert Bowman, it will be after he has died in prison, a pathetic, toothless old man who is all alone, without even his pet rats for company. Before Judge Gene Zamuda passed down his sentence, he asked Robert Bowman if he would like to make a comment. Robert Bowman replied, I recognize the pain and suffering I have just heard. I'm not responsible for that. I feel no remorse. I have no reason to feel remorse. Finally, Robert Bowman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. During sentencing remarks, Judge Zamuda commented that it was time for Bowman to finally be held accountable for his devastating actions. Bowman was then led away in handcuffs. In September of 2014, Robert Bowman filed an appeal listing numerous reasons why his conviction should be vacated, such as ineffective assistance of counsel, his lack of competency to stand trial, and prosecutorial misconduct in court. 
He believed the prosecution had swayed the verdict using emotive language during their closing argument, encouraging the jury to find him guilty prior to the 44th anniversary of Eileen's disappearance. This appeal was later denied. Robert Bowman continued serving his sentence at Pickaway Correctional Institute in Orient, Ohio, where he eventually died in custody. Details about his death are unknown. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.